0: And uh, I also wanted to say thanks to the music team this morning. Uh, in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about how God preserves us and how, how we uh, persevere and how so often we do the right thing. And then, at church, and your heart and mind are distracted, right? You're thinking about a lot of other things. And you're singing songs, and you're like, I know these words are good, and I know these words are true, but I'm honestly not really feeling it. Right? And then there's that in the, I think the last song that we sing, Praise the Father, Praise the Son, Praise the Spirit, three in one. And the first time we sang through it, I thought, I'm not, like these are good words, and I wish I was praising the Father and praising the Son and praising the Spirit, but I'm not. Like I know that I'm not. And we kept singing the song, kept singing the song. And I thought, but I know that's where my heart should be. And those words became not words necessarily of, of exclamation, but words of prayer right like god help me help me to praise you that's where that's I know that's where I need to be and as we continue to sing the song god used music again just like he's used music so many times in our lives right the even the uh, there's a song that says lord tune my heart to sing your praise and i think i think sometimes that tuning happens during songs Right, you're driving down the road, a song that you love comes on, you start listening to it, and by the time you're at the end of the song, you're in tears. Right, You're all by yourself, there's no one else in there, and God has used the song to get you where you need to be. So music team, thank you all for your ministry to us this morning. <clears throat> and I say that, and as I'm saying that, I'm remembering, last night was a total musical rehearsal disaster in here. The, the, there was a demon in the sound system, maybe even literally, last night. I wasn't in here, but I, you know... I heard all about it, and then, uh, and then here this morning, um, I just want you to know that God used just the singing of a song in my own heart to tune me to, I'm not saying I am where I need to be, but I wasn't where I needed to be um, at the beginning of the song, and the Lord used that song to, to tune my heart a little bit. I have two sermons to preach this morning. Not quite. Please start by turning to Acts chapter 6. Um, next Sunday morning, uh, we're going to end the sermon time a little bit early, if the preacher will watch himself. That's a, a, a word to myself. And uh, we're going to take about uh, 10 or 15 minutes to, uh, to kind of vote on some things for the 2023 year, right? We're going to uh, vote to install some new deacons and on the 2023 budget. And we'll do that at the end of next Sunday morning's service. But before we do that, there are a number of people who are relatively new to our church. And I just wanted to explain for a moment why we have this office of a deacon, and what those guys do. The Bible lays out clearly that there are two, what we would call officers in the church, or maybe leaders in the church, and one is that of elders or pastors, pastor, elder, overseer, three different kind of titles, but describing the same person, right? I'm a pastor, Matt's a pastor, Will's a pastor, or elders, or overseers, whatever title you want to use. Um, that's, but it's all describing really the same, the same office. And then there's the office of deacon. And in Acts chapter 6, the Bible gives us this first iteration, kind of the, the prototype deacon, the first round of deacons in the church. Chapter 6 of, uh, of, uh, of the book of Acts is this. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists... Arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Right, so there were some, there were some, uh, some Greek-speaking Jews, and then there was the original kind of Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they were together in this church. that The number of the disciples were growing, and these Greek-speaking Jews, their widows were being neglected in the 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 daily uh, distribution of food and care and and helping. Uh, provide for the necessities of these widowed ladies. And verse one of chapter six is incredibly encouraging to me as a pastor because it reminds me that right there in the very first church, there were church problems, right? Like, I mean, it didn't take long before churches had problems, right? Churches have always had problems. I've been in church my entire life. Many of you have been in church your entire life. Churches have problems. The first church had problems. And God had a way to help resolve the issues that were being uh, experienced there. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to deacon tables. That's what that word serve is actually. It's a verb form of the word deacon. We're, we're not going to give up our ministry of the word in order to go and do this service to minister to these, uh, to these widows. So, so brothers, pick out from among you seven Men of good reputation, people who are full of the Spirit of God, and people who are full of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. We're going to devote ourselves to, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the result, the result of choosing these seven men to do a physical task in the church, it had a result in the church. It didn't, it didn't simply result in, it doesn't, verse 7 doesn't say, and the widows got the food they needed. Verse 7 says, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The, the church was healthy and strong and grew because there were some people who were appointed to a task who helped meet physical needs in the church. And that's, that's what deacons are. Biblically speaking, Acts chapter 6 gives us the clearest view, the clearest description of what deacons do. Deacons, deacons meet physical and practical needs in the church that helps the church then result in a healthier church and greater unity within that church. Okay? And so that's what that's what the deacons here at Liberty Baptist Church have been doing for years. They've been serving in physical and tangible and practical ways in a way that helps our church grow spiritually, become more vibrant spiritually, and as a church that's uh, healthier and more unified because of their service. Practically speaking, we appoint men to serve as deacons in three-year terms, uh, after which, after they serve that three-year term, then we talk and discuss, and if they want to be reappointed, we can potentially reappoint them. Um, for that, but it's not, a, it's not a life sentence, I call it. You, you, just because you become a deacon doesn't mean you have to be one for the rest of your life. Um, and at, our, at Liberty, we, I, I think we follow something that's actually kind of laid out for us here in Acts chapter 6. There was a specific need that was recognized there in the church, and so they appointed those men to meet that specific task. There was a task that they needed men for, and so they appointed men to, to meet that task and uh, and so we here at Liberty we we, we utilize task specific deacons. We don't just say, all right, we're going to pick you men. You guys are you guys would win a popularity contest around here at Liberty. And so everybody vote, yay, okay. We've got we've got these ten men, and they're just going to serve as deacons. They're just going to deek. They're just going to deacon around here. Now we, we, there's there are specific tasks. And we appoint men to those tasks and they serve within, within, those, within those tasks. And again, many of you have been around here a long time. You, you know how this works, but there's enough new people that I wanted to kind of explain where we're getting this concept of deacon and why we're doing it the way, the way that we do it around here. And so next Sunday, we'll be voting on several things um, because we believe that as a congregation, you should have a, you should have a voice in, in this as well to uh, appoint, to, uh, to make the, our... Position of treasurer here at Liberty, a deacon of finance. So we'll be moving that to a to a deacon role. It hasn't been a deacon role historically. It will be a deacon role now, and then we will be voting to affirm Brandon Beavers as the deacon of finance. We will be moving Dustin Peterson, who is currently a deacon from deacon of ordinances to deacon of member care. We will be uh, affirming Frank Lowen as the deacon of ordinances, and Gary Frost will carry on as the deacon of uh, of grounds. And so. We'll carry on uh, that way. Mr. James Perkins, who has served for a number of years as a deacon, will be rolling off of the deacon body at this time. And so um, that's, that's what we'll be voting on as far as deacons go this next Sunday. Um, some of you may, and some of you have asked this question before, can a, can a lady serve as a deacon? What about women serving as deacons? Well, you're just going to have to wait until we teach on that and find out. Um, uh, there, there is there's not unity um, there's not complete unity within the church yet as to whether or not women can serve as deacons. I do, I do believe, um, well, I'll tell you what I believe when I teach on it, okay? But for this round of deacons, we are appointing uh, men to serve in this capacity. And uh, we'll be talking more about that uh, in, the, in, the, in the future between now and next deacon appointments, okay? Now, second sermon. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 14. We're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. And we're going to read the very first verse of chapter 11. And some of you will notice that in your Bibles, verse 1 of chapter 11 is kind of stuck on the end of chapter 12. uh, Excuse me, of of chapter 10. Well, That's as it should be. That verse goes with... With chapter 10, rather than starting a new thought unit there in chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we ended with verse 13 last week. Now let's start in verse 14. Therefore, now Paul's, ri- Paul's writing to a group of people who have acted like rascals quite a bit. And he says, Therefore, my, my beloved, I mean, he, he's using a really endearing term here. my my beloved, flee, run run away from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He's talking about the communion cup when they take the Lord's Supper together. And that word partake, is the word fellowship, koinonia. He's saying this. When we, when we bless and take the Lord's Supper together, isn't that a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break for the Lord's Supper, is that not a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There, there is a lot. Those... Verse 16 could be, verse 16 and 17 could be a, a standalone sermon all by itself. The significance of what happens when you take the Lord's Supper. It is connecting you spiritually to Christ and it is connecting you spiritually to each other. This is why we ask people who don't know Christ as their savior or people who aren't walking with the Lord not to partake of the Lord's Supper because, because we don't actually have spiritual unity verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? If if you're you're participating in a sacrifice, you're, you're participating in the spiritual worship that's happening there. Verse 19. What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply That what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, verse 31, really popular verse, really important for us to understand it in the context here. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me, let me re- reread that verse with a little bit of, of um, explanation so whether you eat or don't eat, or drink or don't eat, or excuse me, eat or don't eat, drink or don't drink, whatever the choices are that you make, do, do all of them to the glory of God. And the thought's not done yet. We always stop at the end of verse 31. Thought's not done yet. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That's that's part of giving glory to God, not giving offense to someone else. Again, thoughts not done yet. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And in all of this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Father, many of the verses in this passage are so familiar to us that it's uh, we've we got to come to it thinking that we already know what it says. It's a Bible verse that many of us have known for many, many years. And yet, Father, I, I think there may be some points of application here that need to be fresh in our hearts and in our minds and made new for us or maybe even explained in a way for some in this room that will, for the first time, turn some lights on spiritually for us. God, would you, please, would you please use your word through me, help me this morning to communicate in a way that would make this passage clear and helpful for us. And Father, I, I do pray that the personal introspection that this passage is supposed to cause would, would happen here for us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Angie and I worked for many summers at a Christian camp together. And when we were at that camp, that camp director had a number of kind of slogans and sayings that he used regularly. And one of them was this, and, and uh, it, it was, it's so funny because it was, as so often happens, as I'm listening in Sunday school uh, on Sunday mornings, I think, man, that's just exactly what I'm going to talk about this morning. He had a, he had a saying, and it, and it went like this, there's only two choices on the shelf pleasing God or pleasing self. Only two choices. There's only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Those are are the two choices. Only two choices. Imagine going to the grocery store in here. I don't think there's a single item in our grocery store that's limited to two choices, right? Cereal, 9,000 choices. Chips, 15,000 choices, right? It doesn't like there's there's nothing in our lives that only present two choices. But imagine going into the grocery store and there on the shelf before you were two things. There was a bag of pleasing God and a bag of pleasing self. That's it. There's two choices here for us. And at first when I was at this camp I kind of thought, "That's a great saying." And then as I as I grew theologically and I grew in my understanding of things and became, you know, so so uh, high and lifted up and educated, I thought, ah, oh, that's a, that's an oversimplification of how life works, and da 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 da. And I became critical of this saying. And then, as I continued to grow and life kind of humbled me a little bit, right? You know how it is, right? When you're when you're when you're 25 and you're a theologian and you know everything, then you're ready to kind of correct the world. I remember going home and talking with my dad about things and, and kind of helping my dad see the right way on things. I remember the first pastor I was an associate pastor with. I remember helping him see some things that he needed to see. And I have since apologized to both of those uh, men for the absolute foolishness and arrogance uh, of, of my correction of them. They were patient and kind. They didn't shoot me or kill me or fire me. And the same thing with this simple little phrase here, only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. And I come, I've come full circle back around to it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going... Yeah, you know what? That actually is a pretty good way to sum up just about everything in life. I can either please or glorify God, or I can please and glorify myself. And so, for the purpose of this morning's sermon, maybe the question would be this, or the statement would be this. There's only two choices on the shelf, glorifying God or glorifying self. The main point this morning is this. Do all to the glory of God and the good of others. Do all to the glory of God and the good of others. That's the point that Paul is making here as he ends this big, long argument that he started at the beginning of chapter 8. Several weeks ago, Matt preached 1 uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Excellent sermon. Finally listened to it yesterday. Great sermon. And really, on one hand, you could preach chapters 8, 9, and 10 all together, and we actually even talked about the possibility of doing that, and you know, I tend to move slower rather than faster, and so we've taken our time moving through chapters 8, 9, and 10, but really, Paul is making one big argument in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and he's making these arguments regarding how you, as a Christian, interact with the gray areas in this world and then the Christian's your Christian brothers and sisters that are around you. And so this morning, we're going to look at four different points here this morning. I'm just going to give them to you as we come to them. Point number one is this, don't eat meat. Don't eat meat that pulls you into idolatry. Don't eat meat that pulls you into idolatry. Or if you want to just write the summary statement, don't eat meat, that works. Don't eat meat that pulls you into idolatry. Verses 14 through 22, Paul is saying, look in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And again, I mean, the, the idolatry that was so rampant, uh, even amongst the nation of Israel as they were, you know, in Egypt and then leaving Egypt and going through the, the, the wilderness wanderings and then even once they entered into the promised land and the constant syncretism of pulling in other gods and worshiping other things, idolatry. The word even kind of sounds a little bit like adultery, right? And God uses that illustration to say, listen, the idolatry that you are guilty of, it's like adultery. You, you're being unfaithful to me. And, and Paul is t- looking at the Corinthians, right? And they, they live in a city where there is the worship of other wicked pagan deities all around them. And Paul is saying, run away, run away from idolatry. I'm speaking to sensible people, judge for yourselves. You can have fellowship through communion. You, you, take, the, you take the cup that we bless and the bread that we bless and, and you, we, we take this together and it ex- expresses our fellowship with each other. Or, or you can partake in the idol festivals of this world. Flee from those. Don't eat the meat that pulls you back into idolatry. One commentator describes it this way. In Corinth, the temple functioned as a central communal gathering place. The temple, the the pagan temple. The temple courts included tables for regular feasting. So the temple functioned something like a modern-day restaurant. There would be nothing out of the ordinary about attending a brief sacrificial ceremony and then joining friends for a nice meal afterwards. It wouldn't necessarily have been accompanied by any kind of religious feeling whatsoever. The priests were doing their thing. There were some devoted believers, but many would have felt rather indifferent to the whole process. There was a social, communal gathering. The Corinthians were used to going to the temple for these meals. And now that they have realized that the idols don't have any substance, they would have begun to visit the temples again. And Paul is saying, you can't have fellowship. You can't, in, you can't be with idol worship and be a follower of Jesus Christ. Look again in these verses here, in verses 14 and following. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. We're going to explain that as we go through. Now, Now, Paul says, now, am I saying that an idol is anything? Let's imagine that there's some kind of silver or gold or wood statue of the goddess Diana. And Paul is saying, look, that lump of gold, that piece of wood, it, it actually isn't a thing. And for you to put meat in front of it and to dedicate that meat somehow to that piece of wood, like there, there isn't, that's not a God. And that meat isn't somehow contaminated by the not God thing. But when that meat is offered to that idol, there is a spiritual reality behind all of that. And Paul just says it's demonic. It's demonic. Pastor John MacArthur says there's never a God behind an idol, but there is always a spiritual force. And that force is always evil, always demonic. I would say there's never, there's never a God behind an idol but there is always demonic power behind idolatry. Whenever, whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we are committing idolatry. This is a quote, another quotation from a pastor. Most people don't even know it's happening. They're not saying, I want, I want this instead of Christ. Fill in the blank with this. Anything can be an idol. I want, I want this instead of Christ. They're saying, I want Christ plus this. To get at the idols of one's heart, you have to step back and consider the way your desires shape your life. What drives you to work or not work? What drives the way we live? What causes us to eat and drink the way we do? What, what desires lie behind the way we relate to others? What do we daydream about? What do we fantasize about? What do we long for? Do we often say, if only I had this, or if only I were like this? What's your desire pointing at? What is the affection of your heart pulling you toward? What is the end goal? Answering these questions will help one discover some of the layers of the idolatry in your own heart. Listen, idols, an idol is, the, is a thing that you give your attention to, that you give your devotion to. It's the thing that you look to for your reward, for your satisfaction, for your pleasure. We look to them for meaning, for identity, for reward, for pleasure. We give our time and our energy and our money without any thought of it being a sacrifice to the thing that is king in our lives to the thing that is the idol to the thing that is is the 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 thing that we practically speaking are are worshipping and brothers and sisters whatever it is that you're thinking i'm getting ready to like step on like the thing that you're thinking yeah but it's not that in my life it probably it's probably that it probably is that And God says, take heed when you think you stand. We looked at this last week. Like Paul didn't stop. Paul didn't leave that take heed part behind and move on to something new here. This is all part of the take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. We give our attention, our time, our energy. We give our money to it without any thought of it being a sacrifice. Tim Keller says the three big ones are money, sex, and power. I think it's a pretty good list. And the Bible in 1 John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There are, there are all sorts of things. And as soon, I'm so hesitant to begin listing some because if I don't list yours, then you think you're scot-free. And yet if I don't list some, I'm, I'm, af- I'm afraid that I don't give helpful application. Listen, we can't idolize almost anything And the things that are sneakiest are are the good things that we make ultimate things. We can idolize fitness and health and sports and hunting and fishing and hobbies and family and work and money and and eating and the list goes on and on. And Paul says to flee those things. Flee idolatry. One pastor says, idolatry is a sharing, a fellowship, a participation, a yoking together with something alongside of our relationship with God. There is no one in here who says, I don't want God anymore. I'm just going to follow this idol. I love football and that's going to be my idol and I don't care about God anymore. That's not this room. You're here which is at least, to some degree, some evidence that you want God to be part of your life. Where, where we, where we tr- have trouble, brothers and sisters, where idolatry manifests itself in our lives is in that adultery, where we have one love, but we have another love. And we love them both. We love them both, and we want them both. And and God says, No, that's not how I work. God does not play nice with other lovers. Adultery's not cool with him. Idolatry's not cool with him. And he wants all of the idols out of the picture. If we, Pastor Stephen Um says, if we check out when we hear that we might be idolaters, if we think that's not me. We must, be caref- we must carefully heed the words of Paul in verse 12 that says, take heed lest you fall. Listen, brothers and sisters, your knee-jerk response to this needs to be this. This is humbling, I don't like saying this. Your knee-jerk to this doesn't need to be, that's probably not me. Your knee-jerk to this needs to be, okay, God, show me where. Show me where. I, I'm, I'm an idolater, my heart is constantly looking to other things to be for me what only God can be. And Paul isn't giving a command. He's not saying, don't go and have, don't partake in the, in the idolatry of the world. He's saying, if you're a Christian, you can't. He's not giving advice. He's stating a fact. If you have communion with God and with his people, you, you cannot, you he, he says it elsewhere, right? You, no man can serve two masters. He will hate one and love the other. He will hold to one and cling to one and despise the other. And he says in that case, if it's money, if it's mammon, if that's your idea, you, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't have fellowship with God And with Satan. Christians don't sacrifice to idols. So let me ask you are you fellowshipping with God and the people of God or with the evil one and the things of this world? And I assure you that the Corinthians, as they looked to the goddess Diana, they did not look at her as some kind of wicked, evil, pitchfork holding, horn growing, tail dragging demonic deity. Right? They lived in Corinth. They were used to the world that they lived in. They swam in the culture that they swam in. Corinth was home to them. They felt good. They loved the food. At man, let's go to that, over to that temple. Right? I know we don't worship over there anymore. We're followers of Christ now. But man, let's go. And I know they're going to do a lot of that that uh, Diana worship stuff. But the food there is so good. I love the chef over there. Right? Like I don't know exactly, but they it was it was comfortable and easy for them. We live in a world where our idols look different than their idols did, but we are just as comfortable and just as at home with them. There's more I could say on that. But point number two. Point number one was don't eat meat. That pulls you into idolatry. Point number two is do eat meat. Do eat meat. Eat meat because it's a gift of God. God. Eat meat. It's a gift. All things, all things are from God. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. This is verses 23 through 27 now. And here, verses 23, uh, you see that all things are lawful are in quotation marks. Paul has already taught that to the Corinthian believers. And unfortunately, they've taken that just like we do. And they've kind of said, oh, great. All things are lawful for me. That means all thi- I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter that God had already given a Ten, 10 commandments that has told us what not to do. Eh, that was back then, right? Now is now. We're going to, all things are lawful for me. Paul's saying, look, all things are lawful. You're quoting and he's kind of quoting them saying that. Remember, they've already written him a letter, and Paul's kind of saying, look, you're saying all things are lawful, but I'm telling you, not all things are helpful. Yes spiritually speaking, it's true that all things are lawful, not the things that God has forbidden, but all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now we're going to talk about that at the very end. So I'm not skipping it. I'm just pushing pause on that. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. I love the Thanksgiving song. This is my father's world. I think of it as a Thanksgiving song. Is that kind of a Thanksgiving time song? This is my father's world, right? There are times where I walk around and I see things and I think, man, it does seem like the evil is often so strong. But this is my this is my father's world. He rules and reigns. Um, This is my father's world, and the earth is the Lord's, and the full all of the abundance of this earth is God's. But without the grid we're going to look at for the glory of God and the good for others, the idea of all things are lawful for me actually becomes inappropriate. Everything in the earth is the Lord. He filled it up with good things. And Christians, it is appropriate for us to receive from the Lord his good gifts and to enjoy them to his honor and to his glory. But again, we can so often, we can take a gift and we can make it a God. He's already forbidden in point point number one there. Do eat meat. Do eat meat because it is a gift of God. And don't ask questions on the ground of conscience. You can go to the grocery store. Here's the closest illustration I can think of for us as to what the, the Corinthians would have been dealing with there, right? They, they could have gone to their grocery store and there may have been foods that had been offered to Diana or not. And, and instead of like trying to figure out whether or not has this, has this food been offered, God is giving, he's, he's giving them freedom. All things, are, all things are fine for you. Go to the meat market and buy the ribeye and take it home and cook it and eat it. That, that steer is God's steer and he made it, and an idol is nothing. So go, and without raising issues about your about conscience, just go ahead and enjoy it. Well, we can go in a grocery store, and we can see things that are, that are prepared by um, Jewish people or Hebrew people, and it will say kosher, right? Now, let's just, I, I think this illustration works. If it doesn't, forgive me. Um, foods that are prepared by Hebrews for kosher consumption. This is not food that's prepared by followers of Jesus Christ. These are not Christians, these are not born again believers. All right, so you could say, well, so, so they're, they're, not, they're not Christians and I am a Christian, and so does that mean that this food is inappropriate for me to eat? Um, that this food which has been prepared in a, in a kosher way, which has been prepared in a way because of religious observance, does that mean that I need to avoid it? No. If you want to go and buy kosher food, go buy kosher food and eat it. There's food that's prepared similarly for Muslim consumption, following the, the, the laws of halal, right? And so you can go into... Um, probably not in Dalhart. Probably not. Our United probably doesn't have food prepared this way, but I'm sure bigger cities do. And certainly cities in the, in the Middle East have food that's been prepared according to halal. And that means that a Muslim can, can eat that food. And so if I, as a Christian, walk into a supermarket and I see that there's food that's prepared there according to that religious observance, does that mean I have to avoid that? No, no, I, I can eat it, I can eat it. I can eat. I can eat meat because it's a gift of God. Unless, verse three, or uh, point number three, we're back to don't eat meat again, right? Point number one was don't eat meat unless it leads, if it leads you into idolatry. Point number two is do eat meat. Point number three, we're back to don't eat meat again. Don't eat meat if it causes others to stumble, verse twenty-eight. But I, but if someone says to you, "This has been offered in sacrifice," then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for the sake of, of conscience, I, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that because of that for which I give thanks? And if you want, if you want a full explanation of this point of the sermon, then go back a few weeks and listen to Matt's sermon on. 1 Corinthians chapter eight. That's where he deals with what does it mean to be a stumbling block to do something in front of another believer or unbeliever, for that matter, that would cause that would cause them to stumble. Right? I can eat meat because my conscience knows that 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 meat's fine and there is no such thing as that idol. But if if someone else comes along and says, "You're going to eat that?" I didn't think we were. I didn't think you're a Christian. I don't think you're supposed to. I didn't think you were supposed to eat that meat. Or we're Christians we're not supposed to eat that meat. W- what do you do in that moment? And Paul says this, listen, you want to know how free you are? Do you want to know how liberated you are as a Christian? You don't have to eat it. You know how free it is to be able to not do something? Like, that's the kind of freedom, that's the kind of liberty that Paul's talking about here. Hey, no big deal. I don't have to have that thing. I'm free from it. And in fact, brother or sister, because of your conscience and where you are in this moment in your Christian life, or maybe you're an unbeliever and you look at me and think, I didn't think believers were supposed to eat this meat that I'm eating. This has been offered to a pagan deity and, and I don't think you're supposed to do that. I can, I can pause, I can wait. I don't have to engage in that thing. I'm gonna explain point number three even further now And point number four. You might think, man, we're almost done, point number four. Point number four is the longest. Point number four. Do or don't eat meat. Do or don't eat meat. Do or don't eat meat for God's glory and others' good. Look in verse 31. So, whether you eat or don't eat or drink or don't drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, as I was studying this passage this week, um, I met on Friday with some guys and, and we were doing a sermon preview and I was asking some questions and trying to get some things figured out. And I did not get everything figured out. Um, but the one big question that I had in my mind is, well, how? like I want, I want to know when am I supposed to eat the meat and when am I supposed to not eat the meat? And then even before that, I wanted to know what is the meat? For our culture, for our world, like what, what is a meat offered to idols and what is just regular old meat? So I was thinking, what, what's meat, what's not meat? I've, I was surprised at how very little help commentaries and even sermons are. What's the meat, what's not the meat, and then when do I eat it and when do I not eat it? And, and it was as though the Lord just kind of in a moment of clarity as I was thinking through this passage helped me realize that isn't the point. That's actually not the point. The point isn't try to figure out when you're supposed to eat the meat and when you're supposed to not eat the meat. The point is, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do it to the glory of God. Do you remember when someone asked Jesus, what's the first and great commandment, how Jesus answers that? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And then there's a second commandment that's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, there's one ultimate thing to give glory to God and to do good for others. And he makes them inseparably connected. Look, verse 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, but give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. See, the point of the passage isn't actually about meat eating or not meat eating. The point is about glorifying God and doing good for others. One commentary says, Glory properly defined is public praise, honor, and fame. Publicly praising, publicly honoring, publicly faming God, to glorify something is to give it glory. To glorify is also to light something up brilliantly. Paul suggests that Christians are to live all of their lives starting with the most ordinary things like eating and drinking in such a way that God is publicly praised, honored, and made famous. He is indeed weighty and glorious in his being. Paul tells us that of all our desires should ultimately be aimed at making God gloriously known for who he is. Our daily activities, as simple and ordinary as they may be, should be aimed at his glory. The shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God's light the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us, to give something glorious, to give it fame, to give it honor, to give it praise, to light it up brilliantly. So the question, the question that you're asking when you're trying to figure out, should my child commit to being in this event that will pull our family out of church for the next three months? Here's the question. The question is not, is this good? Is this bad? Is this meat? Is this not? when you're trying to determine whether or not you should drink that beer with a coworker, here's the question. Is, is this choice going to light up the glory of God? Is this choice going to show that God is my greatest treasure? Or is this choice going to show that beer is my, my, my greatest treasure? Or that sports is my idol? This has to step on our toes, brothers and sisters. If it doesn't step on our toes, I'm not preaching it right. This steps on our toes. It gives us, it gives us a grid that doesn't make like, oh, I'll just, I'll just do everything for the glory of God. A lot of Christians, uh, you know, I'm involved in that for the glory of God. I'm very, I know this is pulling me out of my regular community with, with my church, but this, I'm doing it for the glory of God. Are, are, you, are you doing it in such a way that you are shining a brilliant light that shows to everyone, God is my greatest treasure? I had to do some, and I'm still in the process of doing some introspection. I love to hunt, but do I idolize it? And I think I might, and I don't like admitting that. I want to move past that pretty quickly. Brothers and sisters, all of us need to take a moment with this. We need to leave here this morning, as we were preparing for this sermon, Will said, we need to leave with the burden of introspection from this passage. I think he's right. The point isn't meat eating meat. The point is God's glory, right? We say, "Oh, I'm going I'm to be involved in that, and, and I'm going to be a Christian in that environment. Are you? I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have talked about, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a, a light for Christ in this way. No, they just wanted that. They wanted that opportunity, that thing, that event, that whatever that thing brings them, that's what they wanted. And they've used the excuse of, I'm gonna be a Christian in this environment. They haven't gone and shown a light in such a way that it shows, hey, yeah, we're gonna be out of church for the next four months following soccer. When I was a a youth pastor, it was a family that I interacted with and I mean, they were just never there. Their, Their kids were never there. And I remember talking with them and they were just like, well, we're just gonna be Christians in this. And literally for months, they were gone chasing a soccer ball around the United States, and I thought, when I look at them, and I'm, I, I'm me, I could judge wrong, I can judge wrong, but I thought, they're not shining a light on the fact that God is their greatest treasure, and that following him and living for him is their greatest treasure, and there's not a line full of people behind them saying, hey, we're going to follow you as you follow Christ. They had hell insurance, or heaven insurance, they weren't going to go to hell, But it just just screamed that soccer was what we're living for. So take all these choices and all these gray areas and ask this, how does my involvement with whatever it is you're thinking of right now, whatever it is you think I'm thinking of you right now, and ask yourself, how does my involvement, how does my choice with this Put on display that God is the biggest, most important, greatest pleasure and treasure in my life. Your choice needs to put that on display. That's what it means to glorify. And it's obvious to others because it's true. So it needs to glorify God and do good for others. Paul has tied these things together inseparably. Look in verse 31. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, this is not man-fearing, people-pleasing. right? Paul, Paul's not saying... No matter what, I just always want to make sure that I'm pleasing everyone. Right? He's talking about a self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial giving of himself to others. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He's talking very specifically about salvation and evangelistic opportunity. I want to live in such a way that I shine a magnifying I shine a magnifying glass. I shine a spotlight on the on God and his glory in such a way that it does good for those around me. And they, they see that God is real and he's worth living for. And they want to follow him so that many may be saved. If you look back up in verse uh, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Throughout this passage, Paul is saying, I want Whether I eat meat or I don't eat meat, or I get involved with this sport, or I don't get involved with this sport, or I do take this as a habit in my life, or I don't take this, or I use this hobby, or I don't use this hobby, I want to do it in such a way where it glorifies God, where it shows people that God is my greatest pleasure and my greatest treasure, and it does good for those around me, that it does good for all around me. It does good for me, it does good for you, it does good for my family. My children see that God is my greatest pleasure and that God is my greatest treasure. My church family sees that God, I mean, this is all, remember the the cup of blessing that we bless? It's a participation for us. We who are many are one. It's it's good for my fellowship with my church family. It's good for my community, for those who don't know Christ. And they look into my life and they see and they want to be saved. So the, the grid for whether or not I eat meat or don't eat meat or do this or don't do that, the grid is, is two questions. It's, it's really kind of one question, but I'll pull it out into two. I think the passage kind of pulls it out into two. Does it glorify God and does it do good, do good for others? And the question that you're going to have to honestly answer, I cannot answer this question for you, but you will have to honestly answer the question, does it really glorify God or is it just me using like a Christian excuse to do what I want to do? I'm really good. I'm really good at using the Christian excuse to do what I want to do. So, does it really show that Christ is my greatest treasure and my greatest pleasure? And then does it really do good for others? Does it bless my, my family, my immediate family? Does it bless my spiritual family, my church? And does it bless those outside my family? Look in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks, or the church. of He's covering everybody. Like, li, li, right, Glorify God, do good for others. And you might think, well, just the church? No, not just the church. Well, just unbelievers? No, not just unbelievers. Jews, Greeks, the church of God. I try to please everyone in everything I do. So take the grid of the glory of God and the good for others, and apply it back even to these different scenarios that we see in this passage. First of all, participating in idolatry, right? Being involved. The, the the first point there was don't don't eat meat if it pulls you into idolatry, right? Does does idolatry glorify God or do good for others? Well, the answer is no. The second thing that we looked at is just going to a, to a meat market and buying a buying a steak and and bringing it home. Does it does it glorify God? Yeah. The world, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. I'm gonna feed my family. We're gonna enjoy this to the glory of God. Oh, but wait, someone is identifying that that's a steak that's been offered to idols and their conscience is, is going to be uh, tempted into, or uh, um, what's the word? You stumble. Yeah, causing a brother to stumble. They're gonna go and buy the steak even though their conscience isn't ready to do that yet. Well then, you know how free I am? I won't eat that steak. Not a problem because, because I love you. And my, my purpose is not to glorify me or have my own liberties. My, my purpose is to glorify God and to do good to you. So we just take glorifying God and doing good for others and start applying it to things. And I, brothers and sisters, I actually do think it brings clarity. And even though your, your conclusion, your choice might be slightly different than mine, right? Some people are eating and some people are not eating, That's okay. And and Paul doesn't even say, now, at the end of all this, you know that the ones who were really right were the eaters, right? Everybody, if you can hurry up and quick get to the eating end of things, that's where you want to be. Whether you eat or don't eat, whether you drink or don't drink, here's what you do. You do it in such a way that it shows, it shines a bright spotlight on the fact that God is my pleasure and God is my treasure, and it's going to do good for others. So what, let me ask you in conclusion, what competes for glory in your life? What competes for glory? What makes it harder rather than easier for you to do good for others? Uh, let me back up. I'm sorry. I just, I, I literally, in my notes, skipped the last bullet point of point number four, which in some ways is uh, uh, one of the most helpful moments in this sermon. Look at verse one of chapter 11. Be imitators of me. Paul's saying this, look, I'm trying to live my life in such a way where it's obvious that Christ is my greatest treasure. I want to live for the glory of God and I want to do good to others. I'm trying to please everyone in every place by the way that I live. So follow me, follow me as I try to do that, as I try to glorify God and self-sacrificially give myself and limit myself all over the place in order to expand my opportunity to minister to you. Follow me as I do that. But he doesn't just say, follow me. Paul does not end verse 1 of chapter 11 with, follow me, follow me. I'm glorifying God and I'm doing good for others, so follow me. He says this, follow me as I follow Christ. So do you know who was the best at glorifying God and doing good for others? Once again, once again, there's a hero to our sermon. It's the same guy that was a hero last week and the same guy that was a hero the week before. And he's the same guy that... I don't even know what my sermon exactly is going to cover next week. We've got head coverings. That's going to be exciting. All right? I actually do think it'll be fun to talk about head coverings. But you know who's going to be the hero? We're going to look at head coverings next week. And somehow, I promise you, Jesus is going to be the hero of head coverings. I might call my sermon Hero of Head Coverings. But this week... The hero, once again, is Jesus because Paul is following Jesus and Paul looks at Jesus and Jesus lived his life in a way that showed that God was real and God was important and he brought all of the decisions in his life under the great glory, the banner of the glory of God. And you want to talk about someone who limited his liberty in order to expand his ministry, someone who did good for others. He didn't just kind of not drink a beer with a buddy in order to have a better testimony. He went to the cross and died so that we might have life. And Paul's looking at him and going, Jesus glorified God and did good for others. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do good. We're supposed to glorify God and do good for others. So, hey, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. Brothers and sisters, I I want us to be a group full of people. I want us to be a church full of people who have our eyes on Christ the only one who ever glorified God and did good for others is Jesus. But I want us to be, have to be a group full of people who have our eyes on, on Jesus and hear these words from Paul and where you come to a place in your life where you say to others, I'm not doing this perfectly, but hey, come follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. And, and you should be able to say that to your kids and to your church family. And to the people in the community around you as, you as you seek the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. I need your help. Uh, I thought this was going to be a very simple passage to study and preach, and it is not proven to be. I do think, Father, that I need more time with this truth. So, Father, I pray that you would uncover for me where my idols are, where I don't glorify you, but I glorify self, where I don't do good for others, but I do good for me. Forgive me and help me. Father, for us as a church, I pray that you would forgive us and help us. Father, I pray that we would be people who live, for the, that live in such a way that our lives shine a spotlight on your glory, that you are great, that you're the greatest thing in our lives, that you're the most important, the most significant thing in the world. And then we, out of the overflow and abundance of that, that we would just do good. God, please help us with this. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you don't live for the glory of God. You just, you know you live for the glory of self. Then turn from your sin and trust in Christ as your Savior. And I or one of the other pastors would be happy to visit with you about that this morning. I think for many of us this morning, though, we need just a moment. And I'll ask Vicki if she'd play just for a moment on the piano. We just need a moment to, to, to pray. You may need to ask God to forgive you. You may need to powwow with your spouse or with a friend to talk through some of these things. We'll give you just a moment to pray and talk with the Lord about this.